uh, I promised you that I would speak on eight secrets of a happy home. But before I give the secrets, I would like to sort of connect with yesterday's meeting and also link up with our dear brother Dower's message last night. You know, as I sat there last evening, and I was reminded that the world is waiting. The world is waiting. How long will we keep the world waiting? For the genuine manifestation of his grace and his love and his power through his people. I said in my heart last night, O oh Lord, I want to follow thee in all things. I want to follow thee in everything. And I remembered that Jesus said, If ye love me, keep my commandments. Love is the spring of all our action, isn't it? And obedience to him in all the things, all the beautiful light that he shed on our pathway. And what a delight it is to do his will when he is abiding in our hearts. And to connect up with yesterday's message. First of all, I think I shall read you Hebrews 11, verse 7. Because yesterday we spoke about love in the home. And I have been reminded as I have read this particular verse, verse 7, of a man who must have been a wonderful dad in his own home. Because the only ones that listened to his preaching were those of his own household. Verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear or with godly fear prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith think of it friends by faith yes by a living faith in a living God, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. And friends, that's our situation today, isn't it? Moved with godly fear. My brethren and sisters, I want that godly fear in my heart, fear to disobey my God, fear to displease him, the fear of God in my heart not a fear of his judgments, but just a fear that I might hurt him or, or disappoint him. He moved with godly fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Isn't that wonderful? Dear parents, don't you want to prepare an ark to the saving of your house? Think of it, for 120 years that godly man preached faithfully, witnessed faithfully to the will of God, irrespective of what was going on around him and the scoffs and the indifference of the people around him. 
And finally, friends, the only one that listened to his preaching were his own children, his own family. I say Noah must have been a wonderful dad, don't you think? It's a great thing when children listen to their parents' teaching. Their parents must be backing it up by godly, consistent lives. The Lord said of Abraham, I know my servant Abraham that he will command his household after him. I know him. I can trust him. He's faithful. I can use this, my servant, that he will command his household after him. I said, Noah must have been a great man. He must have been a consistent man. He must have been a wonderful father. Dear fathers this morning, what memories are your sons and daughters going to have of you? As they look back, when you're gone, when they leave your home, what memories are your children going to have of you? A young man said once, Pastor, my dad's the godliest man I knew. My dad is a man of prayer. He said, you know, Elder, I've known my dad to pray with me out in the hayfield. I've known him when we've been pitching hay. My dad to come over to me and he put his big farmer hands on my shoulders. He said, son, would you pray with me out here in the hayfield? And my dad has put his arms around my, on my shoulders and he's prayed for me. He's prayed that I would grow up to be a good boy, that I would love the law, that I would serve. Oh, he said, my dad is the godliest man I ever knew. Oh, husbands, fathers, isn't that a wonderful testimony? Wouldn't you like a testimony like that to be born of you? That dad must have been, must have backed up by his life, a consistent, loving father heart he must have had in life for that boy to say that. Fathers, what memories are our children going to have of us? And mother, what memories are, the, as the, are your daughters going to have of you? What memories? I told the shepherdesses yesterday about a great mother, Mrs. Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley. The great John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, the man who stirred England and brought a mighty revival that changed England there and saved it from the terrible godless revolution that took hold of France about that same time. But John and Charles Wesley, Charles the great hymn writer and the great preacher and hymn writer, they had godly parents. Their father was a minister, Dr. Samuel Wesley. 
But you know that mother, she had a tremendous influence over her children. She had 19 children, if you please. I see the ladies looking at each other now. <laughs> they had families in those days, didn't they? We don't know anything about it with our one, two, three, or four. But I tell you things, they had something else too, of strength and godliness and integrity and honesty. John Wesley said, oh, by the way, only 11 of those 19 grew to adulthood. But each one of the 11 became a thoroughly committed Christian. Why? They had a godly father and an amazing mother. John Wesley said he learned more from his mother than about the Word of God and about Christianity than he learned from all the theologians of Europe. That mother took nothing for granted with her children. She had a little room in her home, and she took each child in turn repeatedly. And there in that little room, she would talk with that child about his own personal relationship to Jesus Christ. She'd read the scriptures. She'd talk to them about Jesus. She'd talk to them about their own relationship to Jesus Christ. And she led there in that little room each one of her children into a personal, living, loving relationship with a personal Savior. What a mother. Indeed, she held a Bible class in her kitchen on Monday mornings for the women of the neighborhood. And so great was the crowd of women that came to that Bible class, oftentimes there wasn't even standing room in her kitchen. I read a portion of a letter that she wrote to her son John, the great John Wesley, that mighty man of God he became. And you know, mothers, a portion of her letter ran like this. Whatever weakens your reason, whatever impairs your tenderness of conscience, whatever obscures your sense of God, Whatever takes off your relish of spiritual things, that to you, my boy, is sin. I say again, what a mother. I would to God we had thousands of mothers who could write letters like that to their children, to their sons. No wonder she gave to this world such an illustrious son as John Wesley. A woman of great faith, of great integrity, a woman who knew God, a woman who could expound the scriptures. What memories that man must have had of that mother. Mothers and fathers, we don't acquire that in a day either. It's a steady pursuance of the will of God every day. It's consistent living every day. You know there are many enemies to the home, to the home today, friends. You know as well as I do what's happening to the American home. The drastic, the tragic disintegration of the American home 
And no country where the home has gone to pieces can stand for long, friends, it'll go to pieces. For the very success of the nation, the well-being of the church, the prosperity of the nation, Sister White says, is dependent upon home influence. And the strength of that home is in the strength of the godly mother and father who lead that home. Think of it, friends. As I mentioned yesterday, Dr. Meninger, the great world psychiatrist, stated recently that the, in the family, that the family life, the home or the family life in the United States of America is headed for a national tragedy. The home in this country. We know that's true. We know what's happening. What is causing it, friends? Of course, we're forgetting God. The great standards of righteousness in his law, in his word. Men back there seem to be strong men and women, so many of them. And the discipline of the home was very strong and beautiful. Maybe some think it was over strong, but what men and women they gave to the world. I say the enemies of the home today, friends, of your home and mine, what would I say? First of all, a godless materialism. Just a plain godless materialism, secularism, and materialism, like a blight, is poisoning our souls and our lives and our society and our homes. What is secularism? What is materialism? It's human life, pleasures, business, activities, and everything lived without God. That's an enemy, a dreadful enemy. And brethren and sisters, we breathe that very atmosphere. It's, 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 all, it's like a blight, poisoning us. How much we need these camp meetings. How much we need times like this. How much we need more than that. Time every day for God in our hearts and our souls to be alone with him, to look into his face, to read his word and to understand his will, to get Jesus Christ anew and fresh into our hearts this wondrous power and grace and love every day. And parents, you cannot save your home without Christ. You cannot be the husband that you want to be and you ought to be, friends, without Christ. I know of some happy homes who are, that are secular. They seem to happen to be well-mated. But friends, you cannot live in the complete and true fulfillment of your home and life without Jesus Christ. And so secularism makes a, uh, eats away our homes. And time is spent on things and business and activities and so little time given to the cultivation of the soul. There are other enemies. Godless materialism and secularism. Second, I would say permissiveness. In this age of extreme permissiveness, Anything goes. Everything goes. Eat what you like. Dress how you like. Go to whatever pleasure you like. Do what you like. You know, I was in a home some time ago, and um, there were three or four little children in the home. And I remember after lunch, we were sitting around the table, 
And a little fellow, three or four or five, came along, and there were some some uh, sweets, or was it cookies, on the table. And the little boy asked if he could have one, and mother gave him one. She said, no, no more, just one. He ate that and came back for another one. Mother said, no more. He said, I want one, mummy, so she gave it to him. The third time he came back, she said, now I told you that you were not to have any more, you've had two. And he started to cry. I want some more, mummy. And you know, he cried sufficiently well, evidently, that she gave him a third one. He came back again, and she resisted for quite a while, and the little fellow cried, and he stamped, and he wanted another one. And in order to get peace in that home, in that room, where her visitors, she was entertaining visitors, she gave him a fourth one. What a tragedy. What a grave injustice to that little fellow. For that little boy would grow up to be like youth and many youth today who when they don't get what they want, they'll, they'll riot and they'll shout and they'll scream and they'll rebel. Aren't we seeing that today, friends? Or a firm, kind discipline. Yes, I'm not, I'm not speaking, friends, about anger and bitterness and, and venting our spleen on the children, no. But a firm kindness and strength. For the good of the children, that child, my friends, will grow up a self-centered child. He'll cry for everything he wants and he'll probably get everything he wants. This age of extreme permissiveness I told you the story yesterday about my own mother. I've often thought of it and I've wanted that kind of discipline, that strength to say no. It's a grave injustice to that child. A grave injustice to that child. Loving but firm discipline. That little child doesn't know what is best for him. A child is usually selfish anyway. Give me, give me, give me, give me. I want, I want, I want. Oh, I'm so glad, my friends, that my Heavenly Father tells me when I go wrong. I must be under the discipline of God, my friends, myself, if I'm going to discipline my child as I should. Unfaithfulness is another great enemy of the home. Unfaithfulness. Those solemn vows we made before God. And God's going to hold us responsible, friends. Divorce and separation are rampant everywhere today. You know, I came from a big, I come from a, a big center. And in the main church there, a church of over 4,000 members now, if you please, a pastor recently stated, not in public, but to one of my friends, that a third of his membership is either divorced, lived in broken homes, or they're unhappy. He's wrestling with these problems from early morning till 9.30 or 10 at night when they ought to be engaging in a greater, more positive and fruitful work than this than just trying to help poor, sick, weak members who are, who are yielding to the, to the ways of sin and of the flesh and of desire. Friends, it's a tragedy. Do you know what I read that one out of every three marriages in this country ends in divorce. Think of it. 
In the in Los Angeles area, one out of every two and a half. But you know what I read the other day too, a while back? In the homes where husbands and wives are thoroughly committed Christians, walking in the way of love and truth, worshiping together, loving the Lord together, witnessing together, fellowshipping in the church together, wholly given over to the will of God and to love to the Lord Jesus Christ. One marriage in 1,015 only ending in divorce. Dear parents, Christ still makes a difference. Doesn't he? unfaithfulness, selfishness, another great enemy of the home. Or a home where God dwells and where unselfish living is manifested. Do you know what I was reading? A home is the first school and church for the young ones. It is the cry of the baby, the song of the mother, the strength of the father, the warmth of loving hearts, the light from happy eyes, kindness, loyalty, and comradeship. That's what makes up a home. But a woman once said, Why do I need a home? I was born in a hospital, educated in a college, courted in an automobile, married in a church. I live out of a delicatessen, tin cans and paper bags. I spend my mornings on the golf course, my afternoons at the bridge table, and my evenings at the movies. And when I die, I will be cremated and buried in a brass urn. All I really need is a garage. I'm afraid there are a lot of people that feel much like that about their homes. Now, oh, before I do, I'm afraid I'll forget something, so I'm going to... Uh, I wanted, friends, to, I wanted to deal with just those four verses of 1 Corinthians once again, four to eight, that we touched on yesterday before I give you these rules. You know what it says, love, this love, friends, the agape love, suffereth long and is kind. You know, this definition of love, this Wonderful, the first, those four verses. I could put the word Christ in the place of that word love, and I'd have a perfect, beautiful description of his character. Christ suffereth long and is kind. Husbands and wives and parents and friends, do you have that love? Do you have a love that enables you to suffer long and to be kind? Oh, friends, a love that enables me to be to suffer patiently, to be to to love those who irritate and annoy me. This agape love, I don't know how to do it naturally, and it's kind. My dear brother here this morning, are you known as a kind father in your home? Yes, you discipline, of course, but you discipline in strength. I call discipline and strength the discipline of kindness, the discipline of love. You know I preached in a church once, and while I was preaching there was a man over here, 
and he kept saying, Amen, quite loudly. And I'd preach a little more, Amen. <laughs> well, I thought he's a good, earnest brother, but I wish he'd toned down a little bit. He was a little bit too loud. We're so, we're so formal and reserved, aren't we? We, uh, one or two, if a man dares to say Amen, everybody looks down at him now. But anyway, after the meeting was over, the pastor said to me, Brother Minchin, did you hear that man saying amen? I said, yes, indeed, I did. He said, I wish you could visit that family. He said, the mother's in hospital with a nervous breakdown and we cannot get the older children anywhere near the church. There's trouble there. So next day I met the oldest daughter, 16 years of age, on the road. I knew the family. I had known them just nominally and just casually. And you know, I talked to this girl for a while and I, I said, you know, have you been to a long to our meetings? I said, you know, Brother Minchin's here holding meetings for the young folk. We'd just love to have you along. And she looked at me. Elder, if Dad's going to those meetings, I'm not going near them. Well, I said, why not? What was the problem? And there on the roadside, she told me the story of an unhappy home. Dad's awfully religious. He makes us learn our memory verses. He makes the little children go to Sabbath school and church. We have family prayers, yes. But Dad's got an awful temper. She said, I've known him after we've had family prayers. I've known him to get into a temper immediately and kick the dog out of the door in such a rage over some little thing. She said, I can't be a Christian in my home. What could I say? What could I say? I felt hopeless. You know, friends, she said, mother's in hospital, poor mother, mother's a saint. Mother's a saint. No wonder she's in hospital. When she was leaving me, you know what she said? Elder, if Dad's going to heaven, I don't want to go to there then. I've never forgotten it, friends. And I talked to the little mother in hospital later and she wept. She said, Daddy doesn't know he's driving the whole family out of the church. And he thinks he, he's so religious. He can quote the testimonies. If the young people do something that's wrong in the church, he'll be the first to condemn them with the testimonies. And I went back the next night and there he was. Amen. If, he's, if I said anything that he agreed with. Oh, I felt to call down the power of God into that man's heart to open his eyes that he might see himself. There's a man who was satisfied with a legal, loveless religion. I say, friends, what's the use of my Sabbath keeping and my tithe paying and my church going and my health reform if my heart isn't changed? If my heart isn't changed. That's what we're calling for. All these things are necessary, friends. If ye love me, keep and some of us are satisfied, seemingly, friends, with a shallow type of religion that hasn't gone deep. 
Now, quickly, I'm, I'm not going to get through this, I'm afraid. Listen to this. Well, I think I'll start on these rules because you'll want them. Can I pass on a few tips this morning? I'd like to have gone right through 1 Corinthians 4 to 8, every one of them. But I won't be able to take time. But you know, God in his great mercy and kindness has given me a happy home. My dear companion is with me on the campgrounds here. She's not one for the public platform. But she's made me happy in a wonderful home. Do you know, friends, I wonder if I didn't bring that, but I say <clears throat> to the wives yesterday, to the, husband, to the wives of our ministers, if the minister's wife did nothing more than to make her husband happy and at home, uh, happy in a, and provided a perfect home for her husband, she'd be doing more for the parish than from 10,000 other things that she could do in the church. If that husband has found love, security, happiness in a perfect home. To be his perfect lover is her greatest and most sacred duty. Oh yes. And I believe, friends, we celebrate, yes, we celebrated our 45th anniversary in February of this year. And I believe, honestly, I could say we're, we love each other today more dearly than we did even 45 years ago. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. We have to talk it over many times when we have problems. We'll have problems. But friends, there's a maturity of love. There's an understanding and a strength and a comfort in each other's companionship and understanding love that grows with the years. But now, the first, so I'm going to pass on a few tips, if I may, if they're worth anything to you, friends. First of all, pray and worship together. Oh, what a wonderful thing for a man who wants to be an overcomer and wants to be in the kingdom and wants to be of use to God in this world. What a wonderful thing to have a companion by whose side you can kneel. Be an awful thing to be tied up to an unspiritual wife. Or for a wife who wants God and to do the right and to please her Savior, to be tied up to an unspiritual husband. That's why we, we're so anxious to help our young people before they make their mistakes, not afterwards. Some here may have heartaches this morning because you have a situation that brings the ache to your heart. But you wouldn't have me speak any, any, any other way, would you, friends? Oh, I don't know of any hour, of any moment in all our 45 years when my dear one hasn't been more than willing to kneel by my side to talk about spiritual things, to share our inmost souls. You know, many husbands and wives live in watertight compartments almost. They never share anything in depth. Oh, they can talk about 
the, the, the weather and the business and, and other things, but to share your hearts in depth. I don't mean talk about ordinary things. We can all do that. But do you have, can you share in depth? I always tell the young people, marriage is sharing. It's sharing in everything, in worship, in, in social life, in the family, in your pleasures, and your everything, your burdens, your heartaches, your needs, your children. Sharing, what a wonderful thing it is to share. God said, I will make you a help me to Adam. He knew that man needed a help me. What a beautiful description of the place of the wife and that companionship. And there are so many whose hearts are starving for fellowship in depth. When we can talk about the deep things, our relationship to our God, we can read together, worship together, pray together. Ah, friends, that's marriage in depth. And too many are living superficial lives and friends, you cannot get that integrity and that strength into your home unless mom and dad, they create the spirit of the home. And I say, my friends, the spirit of your home is more important even than the letter. If those children are reared in an atmosphere of love and faith and goodness, integrity, companionship and happiness, they'll never forget it. Their feet may leave that home, but their hearts never. The one thing they'll always want to do is to get home again, come back home, to be with mother and dad. You create that spirit, and the spirit of oneness, of unity, of love. I always say, if there's worship, if there's love for Christ, and spiritual life in that home, in the heart of mother and father, yes, and don't forget, Father, you're the spiritual head of that home. You cannot evade your obligations before God. Sometimes you have to be away, then Mother must take over. But you are the priest of that home. The father of that home is the priest of that home. Don't leave it to Mom to do all the spiritual work among the children. And where she has to carry an almost intolerable burden of the duties and the burdens and the cares of the home as well as all the spiritual life of the home. Yes. And so, I put down as the very first rule for a happy home, a Seventh-day Adventist happy home, a Christian home, is pray together, worship together, seek God together, Share together the deep things of your souls. Many a wife's heart is hungry for it. Many a husband's heart is hungry for it. And we carry along in a lonely way. Oh, that's very important. Next one. Do not nag, criticize, gossip, and complain. You know, one woman said, "'Twas not love's going that hurt my days, but that love went in little ways." 
It's not doing some great thing, perhaps, that's hurt your home. It's the little nagging, the little criticisms, the little complainings, little things. That awful nagging at each other. Oh, I'm so glad I don't have that in my home. I'm so glad I've never had it. I said to my children, I remember when I've married all my daughters and my son to their companions, and I, I've taken those girls uh, and my boy each night, each time before, just a few nights before they were married, and I've talked to them. I remember talking to one of my girls. I said, my dear, have you ever heard your mother criticize me, condemn me, expose my faults in front of you children, or the neighbors, or the friends? Oh, no, Daddy. Mother couldn't do that. I said, of course not. My dear girl, there's one secret of your dad's happiness. She knows my faults. She knows my failings, and many times we talk about them. But she never lets me down. I'm perfectly at rest and secure in my dear one's heart. She loves me too deeply for that. Friends, don't do gossip in the home. Gossip about this one and that one, the neighbors, the friends, the church members, the sermons, the pastor. Do you know I read of a little girl, the pastor visited the home once, her home, and they sat around the table and they had the blessing, and the little girl said, all right, pastor, eat like a hog. <laughs> and the pastor said, why, I don't he eat like a hog, little girl. Oh, yes, she said, Mama says you do. <laughs> ah, friends, beware. Do you know that Abraham Lincoln's tragedy, they say, was not his assassination, but his marriage? Was it Mary Todd Lincoln? Is that her name? She was an incessant nagger. There was nothing about him that pleased her. His nose was too big. He walked too awkwardly. She saw all his faults. One day at a tea party, she got cross with him over something. She picked up a cup of coffee and threw it over him. He just took his handkerchief and wiped his suit and went on eating. What a tragedy. I tell you, friends, uh, I think I have something here that I was reading that I wanted to pass on to you, if I can find it. Nothing will utterly bind your husband in devotion to yourself than that, than that you should have toward him the habit of absolute respect. Nothing will make his soul despise and abandon you sooner than for you to show him any measure of contempt. Love will not do that, friends. The love we've been talking about will not do that. Yes, all the little things. Yes, be patient. This almost is a saying, I suppose. Be patient with each other's mistakes. How short we become with each other. We get angry over each other's mistakes. You know, when we, when we courted one another... We were so patient with each other. We were so careful not to do anything that would displease. 
But now things are different. A few years of married life and those tendernesses and those careful regards for each other's pleasure and happiness seem to have gone. Be patient. We'll discover unsuspected weaknesses in each other. But if love has brought us together, friends, love will enable us to be patient with each other's mistakes. Oh, how patient my Heavenly Father's been with me. Long as he waited for the graces of his Spirit to be produced in my life. And there's still far to go. But oh, that's what, that's what appeals to me. That's what tenders my heart. His patience with me. Husband, be patient with her. Wife, be patient. I've mentioned before, Mrs. Minchin is well acquainted with my faults. She's my best critic, I think. When I do things that don't quite please her, she may not say anything, she'd never say it in company. <laughs> I've noticed, I hope she won't mind, but you know, even at the table sometimes, I have a little sense of humor, I'm sure you've discovered that. Sometimes I have a little tease and say a little thing, perhaps. Always love teases, I hope. But you know, if I've gone too far, I might feel a gentle little touch if mother's by me somewhere. I know what she means. And maybe after we've gone to bed that night, mother will be very quiet. Then I hear her say, my dear, if I were you, and I know something's coming then. <laughs> you can't resist that, friends. But if she exposed me and spoke in an irritated, angry way, it would have an opposite effect upon me. Oh, God, give us tact and love and wisdom. Yes, Do not try to make each other over. God has given us our talents and our gifts and our personalities. And so often a husband will become dissatisfied with his wife and will begin to compare her with other women. Sometimes a wife will become dissatisfied with her husband and she'll get restless. She'll try to make him over. To be what he cannot be. Or we can all improve in our ways and dispositions and we can help each other and encourage each other and be faithful to each other but don't try to do the impossible God has given some seven talents five talents, three talents we're a complement to the other and don't be they do not that will lead to some wives are very dissatisfied I've known of workers' wives dissatisfied because their husbands, maybe, are not doing some type of work or having some success that other husbands are having. And that leads to discontent. That leads to dissatisfaction, leads to dissatisfaction and to lack of harmony and love. And we'll feel we've married the wrong person. All my brothers and sisters determined to make each other happy. Do not cherish the idea, we're told, that our marriage is a mistake. These things lead to that, friends. We can still make each other wonderfully happy. And I want to say, friends, marriage is more being the right person than in finding the right person. 
and a faithful wife. I know of a couple today. I'm sure she's had her problems with him because I know him. But oh, that little woman, she's been so loyal and faithful and true to him, she's making a new man out of him. She's patient with his mistakes. She's got a vision in her heart of how to do it, how to go about it. Yes, another one. Pay little attentions. All those little acts of courtesy and sympathy and kindness that we were so so free to give when we were courting her, men, and I might be a bit hard on the men this morning. You know, did you ever hear of the man who never remembered his wife's birthday, never remembered to call her up on the telephone when he was away, write to her occasionally, perhaps with just a little note, a couple of lines. He wasn't a Christian. He was, in fact, a drunkard. But you know, one day he was at work and he remembered his wife's birthday for, the, for, a, for a wonder. You know, brethren, before I continue, I'd like to say to you, there are three dates that every Seventh-day Adventist husband should not forget. 
And you left work a little early and went and brought her a bouquet of beautiful roses. And he came home and he knocked at the door to give her a surprise. And she came to the door and he threw the roses to her. And then he started to sing, Happy birthday to you. And you know, she threw up her hands. And she said, Oh, isn't this dreadful? She said, The children have been cross all day. The telephone has been ringing all day and the children are cross and now you've come home drunk. Don't give her don't give her a shock like that, brother. <laughs> oh yes, friends, the little things. It's just the little things that make the sum total of happiness. And so husbands, when did you last call her up when you were at work? and said to her over the telephone, Honey, I love you. Is there anything I can do for you? My friend, a husband like that, she'd lay down her life for him. We often starve for the expression of love. We go off to work sometimes in a huff and never even think to kiss her goodbye. Just a little kiss goodbye. We have the habit of always kissing each other goodnight. It's just a little habit that we have. But friends, it's the little things. It was not love's going that hurt my days, but that love went in little ways. Some of us are stubborn and proud and selfish. Selfishness makes us unkind. Yes, give honest appreciation. Sincere, honest appreciation. When did you last thank her for that wonderful meal she prepared for you? Toiling at home there, thinking of you, planning for you the things you like. And we so often fail to say, thank you, my dear, that was delicious. And if she burnt the dinner one night, don't grumble and complain about it. Say, my dear, I know it wasn't up to your usual. That will make her strive for something better next time. And if she has a dress that's especially pleasing and attractive to you, tell her so. Tell her so. Some men even take, never take a bit of notice of how she looks, what she wears, what she does. She lives a life on her own, very likely. I know with Mrs. Minchin, if she has a dress or frock that is particularly pleasing to me, and I say so, even if she doesn't like it herself very much, she likes other dresses much better, I think she'd wear that dress to threads to please me, because I'm, it pleases me. Seek to please each other, friends. Unselfishness in the home. Yes. And two more, and then I'll close. If you are wrong, admit it. That's another secret we've been trying to learn through the years. A girl said to me once, Brother Minchin, I've wondered why I found it so hard to admit when I was wrong. 
But she said, I've realized it in the meeting today when you were talking. She said, my dad, I've never known my dad ever to admit a wrong. He's always right, or if he's not right, he'll be silent. He'll never admit it. Not to mother or to us children. Not all through my years. And dad's a good man. In a sense, he's a good man. I respect him. He's the elder of the church. But she said, dad's very stubborn and very proud man. And I've known, even when we been sitting around the table, if Dad had made a mistake, a wrong judgment or something, that he was bowled out in, at the table even, he'd never admit it. I say again, friends, plain, stubborn pride is going to keep more of us back from a walk with God and a closeness, rich in a deeply spiritual life than perhaps anything we know. If you're wrong, admit it! My dear, I'm sorry I was wrong. Forgive me. A real man will say that, and a real Christian. A real Christian. It doesn't belittle us, it doesn't weaken us. A man stands taller and taller before his family and before the church and before God when he can humbly acknowledge a fault. If you're wrong, admit it, and admit it quickly. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And that comes, friends, in our relationship to our God, too. If you're wrong and you know it, admit it. Say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. But as Spicer used to say, if you sin at 10 o'clock, get forgiveness at 10 o'clock. If you sin at 6 o'clock, get forgiveness at 6 o'clock and press on with your heart clear and right before God. Oh, isn't it wonderful to be right with God and to be right with your loved ones, to be right with your dear one, that precious companion of your life. Another, the final one, forgive and forget. I don't believe it is God's will that divorce should take place every time that there even is unfaithfulness. God's plan would be for both that the offender and the wife to come before God in deep, sincere repentance and confession of sin and wrong and seek God's forgiveness and each other's forgiveness and put the past completely behind us and press forward heart in heart hand in hand to a new life in Christ. Too many of our people today, even of our people, think that, they, that divorce is the easiest way out. It's not. The tragedy of divorce. The tragedy in the hearts and lives of the children. Forever. Even to the innocent one, tragedy is an awful and a dread... Uh, the, the divorce is an awful and a dreadful tragedy. Sometimes I know it's unavoidable. Jesus maintained the permanence of marriage. But because of human sin and failure, he did give one allowance. But only because of the hardness of our hearts was divorce permitted for adultery. Because of adultery. God wanted, wants our hearts to be made soft and tender and right with him and to come together in a new loving relationship and forgive and forget. Don't keep taunting each other with the past. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, haven't we? We can press forward to a new life in Christ.
please forgive me, friends. Again, I've spoken at length. I, I don't dare look at the time. Anyway, my watch keeps stopping on me, so it mightn't be right anyway. God bless you, dear friends. Lead us into the happiness and the joy and the beauty and the wonder of a real Christian home. But it takes Christian mothers and fathers and husbands and wives to make such. And then, my dear people, our homes will become little heavens on earth to go to heaven in. But be assured of this, friends. If we've failed, and we all have failed, remember, he loves us still. He's calling us to a new start. I even feel like starting anew this morning. Every day can be a new beginning, can it not, friends? Isn't that wonderful? God bless you. Husbands and wives, especially. And those of you who live in divided homes, those of you who have heartaches, God give you extra strength. You know, I preached on this subject to our youth, not on the marriage, but on, on courtship and friendship and ideals and standards and so forth. One night in a church and there was a dear girl over here had her head down weeping. And she seemed to be weeping all the way through the meeting, wiping the tears from her eyes. And we stood up to sing the last hymn, and she was still there, wiping the tears. And I said in my heart, that poor girl has made a mistake. And I haven't offered a word of comfort to those who have made mistakes. I determined I'd talk with her. I'd seek her out and straight after the meeting and try and chat with her. But you know, before the last hymn was finished, she slipped out of her... Uh, the pew there and walked quickly outside of the church and I never saw her again. I felt sad. I prayed for her. I said, Lord, help me never to speak on a subject like this without offering a word of comfort and of hope to those who've made mistakes. And I feel to say tonight, friends, this morning, as Jesus said to that poor woman who'd made a mistake, she'd sinned. Go. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. What a Savior. God bless you, friends. Shall we stand to pray? Our wonderful Father, thou who dost remember our frames and knowest that we are dust, our loving Father, thy love is so great, so pure, so strong, it does, not it, it does not compromise with sin. It is pure. It is right. It is holy. We want that love. As husbands and fathers, we need that strength, that strong love. Not a weak, sentimental love <coughs> that does not discipline. Oh, Lord, help us to be under discipline to Thee. This is our necessity. Help these dear mothers to be under discipline to Christ themselves in their daily lives by our ordered homes, by our ordered lives, our loving, faithful obedience to thy will in everything, that we shall pass on this strength and integrity and uprightness to our children. Bless us, Lord. Kiss us with the kiss of forgiveness and send us on our way so that one day soon we shall go home to that glorious, wondrous home beyond. We ask these mercies again in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Oh,